up, Sassanacs? It's Chelsea back for another episode of the Sassanac Files. This week, we are discussing part one of The Diamond Brooch by Catherine Lowry Logan in this edition of Droughtlander Book Club. But before we get to that, I want to take a moment to remind you that you can find the Sassanac Files on all sorts of listening platforms, including iTunes, CastBox, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, iHeartRadio, and many more. Also, if you have not had a chance yet, make sure you head over to follow the Sassanac Files on both Facebook and Instagram to make sure you are up to date on all of the latest and greatest news concerning Outlander Season 7 and eight, as well as Men in Kilts, Blood of My Blood, and anything Diana Gabaldon cooks up. And with all of that out of the way, let's get into my analysis of The Diamond Brooch by Catherine Lowry Logan. the 1881 trip and kind of how that all devolved obviously it was the cluster of all clusters kind of a foobar if you will it really impacted the way that not only jack goes about his life afterwards didn't it impacted him to the point of no return like he will forever be changed by what happened but it also affected the clan and the clan dynamics one thing that's developed out of this is what's called the McClenna Adventure Company. And basically what it is, is it's just recording all their meetings and everything for posterity so that future generations can learn from the mistakes of these early trips, which I think is ingenious. I mean, we've got a lot of young kids in the clan and with every book it grows. And so how are they going to learn from the mistakes of those that came before them if there's nothing out there saying what decisions were made and why they were made? From this point on, you really start seeing post-action reports and things like that being filed from every member of the clan that participates in these adventures. So 1881 was definitely a learning experience. While Carolina Rose died because of the unfortunate events that occurred there, Kit and Cullen also survived a major health crisis, which they wouldn't have done if the clan hadn't interfered. There's a bit of tension back and forth in the clan about whether the 1881 mission was a success or a failure. They found the Confederate gold, and so that was obviously a major win as well, but it didn't come without a price. That's what a lot of them, especially Jack, are struggling with at this point because he did care so deeply for Carolina Rose. And then on top of all the stuff that kind of devolved from the 1881 adventure, <laughs> for lack of a better term, you've also got a lot going on with the McClenna clan in general. They're expanding exponentially. I feel like book after book, it just keeps getting bigger and their wealth keeps expanding. And all the things that they've got in the works right now are, you know, the Colorado Ranch, the new stud farm that Shane's working on in Australia. They're working on a winery in Italy. Lots and lots of balls up in the air. One of the big points of contention is, can we afford to do this adventure now? Like, yeah, obviously somebody needs to go back and get Amy because we can't just leave her in the past, but how do we make it work? And that's one big thing that Elliot's really trying to work through at the beginning of this story. It's not that he's not on board with it. He just is trying to figure out how to make it work. A lot of different things going on. And then on top of that, obviously with Jack's 
colossal screw up in the last book. There's a lot of tension there. Not only is he grieving for the woman that he loved, but you've also got a lot of members of the clan that no longer trust him to make the right call. Pete in particular is just not having it. Jack's really spent the last six to eight months working through and facing his inner demons. And he spent some time at the monastery trying to cope with his grief. It all boils down to going on this adventure, going and saving Amy. In a lot of respects, he's the obvious choice to lead this group because he's the most experienced time traveler. But a lot of people are questioning whether he's capable of making the right decisions in this case. Jack is a favorite of mine. And I say that with a lot of (laughs) conflicting emotions because I know that he's, as he puts it to Amy, like he's the problem child. He learns and grows the most out of any of the characters in the series. And you particularly see that over the course of this book. He's a completely different person by the end of Diamond that he was when we first met him in Sapphire. He's just such a complex and rich character and so much fun, I'm sure, to write. It's no wonder that Catherine keeps coming back to him and back to him. Like, you think that you've wrapped it up and then, like, he makes a reappearance in Pearl and then uh, Bloodstone, you know? He keeps popping up because he's just one of those really dynamic and magnetic personalities. We're in it for the long haul with Jack Mallory. (laughs) Obviously, with the last book being the three brooches, now we have this different means of time travel, right? It's no longer a question of soulmates being involved because with the three brooches, you don't need it to be a love match. While we as the audience know that there's going to be a love match because we have that knowledge of being a reader, the story itself kind of centers around this unsurety of whether that is actually the case with a male main character who's recently gone through a significant loss in his life and has completely sworn off women and a main female character who is happy having time traveled back to 1909 and has no interest in coming back it just doesn't really seem like it's gonna work out that way right but if you'll remember back Let's take a journey all the way back to the broken brooch when Jack found Amy's picture in a baseball book. She was behind home plate in this famous picture of Ty Cobb sliding home. This is pre-Carolina Rose. Jack felt like this was his chance, right? This was his opportunity to find love. And he threw everything he had into the research and the planning of this rescue mission back to 1909. But then Carolina Rose happened. (laughs) Obviously, there was a lot of doubt about whether Carolina Rose was the person for him. He certainly felt that way at the time. Now, having lost her, he's just not in a place where his heart is open to love. His mind is not open to the possibility of a relationship where he could get hurt again. When they're planning this mission, finally, here in the Diamond Brooch, I think it's Connor that says, I don't know how to put this delicately, but is this a one brooch or a three brooch mission? (laughs) And Jack looks at him and says, you can't seriously be asking me that after what's taken place. 
I've sworn off women. I've never had any interest in dating a jock. The answer is no way, no how, never. I guess he's in for a rude awakening. (laughs) I asked Catherine what she thinks sets this book apart from other brooch stories. And she said it was like, hands down, not even a question. Jack Mallory is what sets this apart because he's such a dynamic character and so much fun to write about. I would find it hard to write about other things having Jack Mallory as a character because you just never flipping know what he's thinking in his head. Like, where is he going? What is his motivation now? That's what makes this book so fun because he's learning and growing and he makes a comment about not being a wise person, you know. But honestly, he has a lot of life experience and he uses those life experiences to inform his choices. It's just sometimes he's a really slow learner. I think by the end of this book, he is definitely wise. People go to him for advice. You see that particularly in his relationships with JL and Kevin and Elliot. He's a very big sounding board for Elliot. One of the ones that's closest in age to him of the clan. I feel like that's easily lost in translation, but Jack's 56 in this book. So there's almost 20 years between him and Amy I think he has a low emotional maturity, especially when we're talking two books ago, but he's getting there. And I think we really see that in this book. Jack has this sexy magnetism about him. He's extremely hot and has that charming smile, that that Southern charm to him. Amy describes it as he's a walking GQ ad leaning towards the silvery fox demographic. (laughs) She says his smile connected to her on a gut level in a way she had never experienced before. This is a woman that she's around men for a living. She's a baseball reporter. She's used to being in locker rooms. She's not easily impressed. She's around good-looking, athletic, high-testosterone men for the majority of her workday. That's just what her job description entails. And so she's not easily impressed by that arrogant, self-confident air that a lot of men put on, but Jack's different for her. So we're getting Jack from like several different women's perspectives. Before this book started, we really just got the perspective of Charlotte, which is his sister. We know he's a ladies man a little bit. And then you get like bits and pieces here. But we really start to see Jack's vulnerability a little bit. JL says, you're handsome and virile, a little gray. Yeah, but it's sexy. You'll turn heads well into your 80s. Look at Elliot and Pops. They're in their 60s and 70s. And everywhere they go, women notice. It's called magnetism. And you have it in hearts and spades and diamonds too. Part of your magnetism is in your smile and the crinkle at the corners of your eyes. Your baby blues aren't diamond twinkly like they were when I first met you, but they'll twinkle again. I know you don't believe this, but maybe we won't see the old Jack Mallory again. Maybe we'll see a new and more honest one. JL is learning to love our Jack Mallory a little bit, and she knows that he's kind of struggling. He's insecure about his age. (laughs) (laughs) Which I think is just so adorable. And I love how Kevin kind of gives Amy the heads up on that a little bit. Like, well, he thinks he's too old for you, you know? But age is just a number, especially when it comes to our McLennan. We all know that. 
he does. He has this quality that makes people love him, even though he can be the most annoying and impulsive individual you have ever met. <laughs> but, you know, he does have that really bad habit of uh, lack of self-control <laughs> that really gets him in trouble. I really liked how he put it because, you know, he's a writer and he has a way of putting things and describing things that I find absolutely fantastic. And he says he'd be the first to admit he had a selfish streak, but not in the usual sense. To a fault, he was loving and generous. The problem was when his curiosity, the untamable beast, teamed up with his selfish side. Then, wham, he became a rail-thin dog walker dragged down the road by a lunging St. Bernard. <laughs> I don't know if I'd call it selfish. I think I'd call it impulsive. But nevertheless, it's a problem, and he recognizes that it's a problem. He makes a comment about how the clan just, we want the old Jack back because he's really deep in grief. And I think not only is it grief for him, it's an overwhelming sense of guilt because he feels like he's the reason that Carolina Rose died. And we see that a little bit in how he interacts with Amy over the whole Christy Mathewson issue. To a certain extent, it's a lot of blame on himself. When he learns to accept the fact that not everything is his fault <laughs> and that we can learn from our mistakes and, and be better next time. Like that's living life. That's the path to enlightenment that he's so fond of referring to over the course of this journey. He learns to deal with it. And I love how he's like, no, the clan doesn't really want the old Jack back. They want a new and revised version. <laughs> yes, a new and revised version. And I feel like that is definitely what we get by the end of this book. We get a revised version and I love the new and improved Jack Mallory for sure. I love him as a father, as a husband. So we talked a little bit about his grief over Carolina Rose. And if it's one thing that Catherine writes so well it's grief and trauma, not just traumatic events, but how characters deal with it. With Jack in particular, it's a journey for him to understand what he's feeling, to process it, to not let it control his life. Here at the beginning of this book, he's really turned into a recluse. He's not going out. He's sworn off women. He's really just focusing on writing his next book and spending time with his family. Charlotte's pregnant again, and he loves his little niece and nephew, and he really just wants to spend time with them, which you can't blame the guy for. But at the same time, like, don't give up. He's in his mid-50s. It's not like life is over. And I think that's just his journey, but especially at the beginning of this He's really in the hole, and I adore how David has been there for him through all of this. More than anyone else, like David always, every day, despite how busy he is, finds time to text, call, something, just to check in and see how he's doing. Like, he's such a good friend, and I feel like we all need a friend like that in our lives, especially when we're going through difficult situations. He spent a lot of time in the monastery and Kevin accuses him of running away from his problems when he goes to the monastery. And 
Jack looks at Kevin and says, when I go to the monastery, I'm not running away from my grief. I'm facing it because when you're there, you can't do anything besides live it. You confront it and you learn to deal with it. He couldn't do that anywhere else but the monastery because he would have so many different things pulling his attention one way or the other. His editor, his manuscript, his family, all of this is all part of his daily routine. And it would be so easy to compartmentalize that and just shove it aside and not deal with the grief versus going to the monastery and having to be confronted with it day in and day out. He describes Carolina Rose as leaving her fingerprints all over his soul and that she was clinging to him in death as he was clinging to her in life. It's a very tragic image when you think about it. Like there's this divide of death that no one can cross. There's this refusal on his emotional part of his brain that's saying, no, I don't want to let go. He wasn't ready to let go. And I think that's a huge part of grief. You have to be ready to not move on. Like, it's not like it goes away, but you have to be willing to accept change and grow around your grief, if that makes sense. And he's not at that stage yet where he's ready to grow. He's just stuck right now. And that's what this journey gives him. Meeting Amy and learning to love again and seeing how she has dealt with the losses in her life really impacts him in a major way. One thing that threw me for a loop, and I'm not shy to admit this, when I found out that Jack played baseball in college and got drafted by the Yankees, I was like, where the hell did that come from? I'm just like, I get that we had to have the baseball connection to Amy, right? Because if you have a guy that doesn't like baseball, that ends up with Amy Spaulding, that's just not a lasting relationship, right? It has to be somebody that understands her love for the sport. And I get that so much. But as a reader, that threw me for a loop a little bit because I was like, I feel like if I had been drafted by the Yankees, I would want people to know that. And yet we just heard about... Jack Mallory, New York Times bestselling author, Harvard Law graduate, etc. I love that aspect of him, but it was a little bit jarring at first, accepting that and like fitting it into my brain's image of him. So yes, he played for the University of Virginia, was a star athlete for four years, got drafted by the Yankees, but being a lawyer and graduating from Harvard and all of that was just really important to him. And when the opportunity presented itself to choose, he chose Harvard, which does make sense. He was already kind of dealing with some shoulder pain and stuff at probably what, like 22. All these professional athletes that just put their bodies through hell for however long they decide to have their career, that's something that they live with permanently. It's not like it ends and it gets better after they stop playing. They have that pain for the rest of their life. And so Yes, they're compensated for it heavily, but it doesn't negate the fact that it's still there. And so, like, I understand his decision because, yeah, it was about him being healthy and he was still getting to pursue a dream of his. Although, you know, I'm sure Amy had a hell of a time trying to wrap her head around the fact that he turned down the Yankees. How can I spend the rest of my life with a man who turned down the Yankees? At least it wasn't the Giants, as she said. (laughs) 
Catherine. I think it was because he gave up on something he really wanted and he kept it quiet. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. Maybe part of it, too, was embarrassment that, like, he had this fantastic opportunity and, like, it's hard to explain to people so that they would understand. So he just kind of tends to sweep it under the rug. Not that people still don't know about it, right? Because I think it's David that makes a comment about if you search Jack Mallory, there's almost as many articles about his love of sports as there is about his books. So, I mean, people do know about it. But I guess it's probably one of those things where you've got two completely different demographics. So the people that read his books might not necessarily be the people that watch professional baseball. There might not be much overlap to where people would like put two and two together. Diane says, Jack is my favorite. David second. Maybe it's because he's older, but that just makes him more seasoned and loving. (laughs) Jack's just so dynamic compared to a lot of other characters. Like as much as I love David, he's very by the book. In the respect that you never struggle with David. He doesn't very often make questionable decisions or make mistakes. There's not a lot of room for growth with David because I feel like he's pretty much perfect in every respect. And so as great as that is and as a fantastic of a person as he is, like there's not a lot of learning to love him. And I don't personally have as much attachment to David as much as I do love him because He's not as human to me. He's like superhuman, like a lot of the McLenna clan referred to him that way. Yeah, I feel like Jack is way more relatable. So I talked a little bit about the fact that as questionable as some of his decisions have been, he does make the best candidate for the leader of this team to go get Amy because he's the most experienced. That's pretty obvious, in my opinion, that he has the most experience, but also he doesn't have the best track record at that. Every trip that he's taken, he's had some colossal screw up, whether it's getting stuck in a ditching B-17, almost getting executed for assassinating President Lincoln, the whole 1881 disaster. So, yes, he has experience. Does that make him qualified to lead a team of time travelers? Jury's out. I think that the loss of Carolina Rose matured him a lot, made him more cautious. And so, yes, with that experience under his belt, a very high stakes learning experience, he worries a lot more about his team members. And it's a very unsettling, unfamiliar feeling for him. You see him reference it a few times about like, I would never have cared about this before. Like, who's doing what and what the plan is and JL can't go by herself and, you know, all of that. It adds a whole level of stress and anxiety to the situation that he never would have thought of because he wants to make sure that everybody's safe and losing Carolina Rose really hammered that home for him. He doesn't want to be responsible for any more loss for anyone. So he takes this job extremely seriously and he uses each of his experiences within the past few time traveling episodes to formulate a plan of attack, if you will. Uh, We see this in how he insists that JL go to court and get her name cleared, even though everybody's like, no, we just won't show up. We'll be out of here before they ever find us, right? And Jack's like, no, we're going to play this by the book because if we are here for longer than we intend to be, I don't want to be constantly looking over our shoulders, wondering if JL is going to be arrested. So we also see it in when we first find out about Gabe and the clan's like, So do we think that he's her soulmate and yada yada? And Jack's like, 
we made this mistake in thinking that Cav was Kenzie's soulmate. We made that assumption and it ended up really getting messy. So we should just take this a little bit at a time, let it play out and see where it goes. Let's not make any assumptions on Gabe being Amy's soulmate. I think he did a good job. I really do think that he did a good job as team leader. If I were him, I would never ask for that again because it's just a whole other level of anxiety that I don't need. And I'm sure he feels the same way. I think anybody who's been a team leader for these time travel adventures probably feels that way, including David. I'm proud of Jack. I was very proud of him after this whole time travel experience. I thought he handled himself very well. One thing about Jack that totally fit in with my perception of him as a character, and I was so happy to kind of expand on that a little bit with him, was how he felt about being a father. Because... You know, he's a perpetual bachelor, right? We always hear about his comings and goings with his lady friends. He gets teased about it by Charlotte and by Bram and by David. We know that he's got a pretty active romantic life, at least he did before Carolina Rose, but he's never settled down. And for somebody that's like, I'm sorry, rich, hot as hell, funny, smart, like why? Why has he never settled down? Well, I have a feeling a lot of it has to do with him being completely addicted to his career, basically. That Remember that impulse control we were talking about? He just kind of picks up and leaves and he's he's never home. The guy is never home. Um, whether he's researching or he's in the mountains riding or he's at the monastery, you name it. He just wasn't ready to settle down, but he always wanted to be a father And I love that element of him. I kind of felt like Amy did when we found out that he had a vasectomy because I was like, whoa, like I did not see that coming. And it was eight years ago. That was a big decision, you know, and I am so glad that Charlotte, God bless her, stepped in and said, okay, but if you do this, I'm going to have to insist that you freeze your sperm because... This may not be a fixable decision. If you regret your decision 10 years from now, you may not be able to do anything about it. And, you know, he justifies his decision by thinking that he didn't want to have children with a woman that he didn't love. And he never thought that he would love anybody the way that he loves Amy. I can't say that that was a bad decision. I don't think it was to each his own, right? Like he totally had a right to do that. I just, it was a very interesting decision for sure. But it sets us up for a really good moment when we get Jack adopting Patrick because Patrick is just his little mini me (laughs) and he's so cute and he needs a home and he needs somebody to love him and take care of him. And Jack sees himself in this young boy, sees the potential and that he needs a helping hand. And I think especially after the loss of Carolina Rose, loving Amy and knowing he's probably never going to be able to do anything about it, Jack needs somewhere to put all that love into. He needs to focus that energy into something. Raising a child that has no family and is living on the streets I mean, that's just, what more would you want from a man, honestly? Like, he literally just took this little boy in and gave him everything. 
I just adore this story so much because I love Patrick and I'm so excited for this next book because Patrick's a big character in it like he was in the last book. And I'm just like the man that he grew up into and the possibilities that he had because Jack took him in and brought him back to the 21st century. And after Jack and Amy ended up together that they had this family, it was just like this instant little micro family that they formed of people that were on their own and kind of lost and not sure where to go or what to do. And then all of a sudden after this trip, they just found each other. It's just so good. Like, I just love it so much. I did ask Catherine what she thought about the Patrick adoption thing. I don't know if you guys know much, but Catherine like doesn't outline things when she writes. It just kind of evolves naturally. And wherever it takes her is wherever it takes her. And so she is what we call in the writing world a pantser. There's pantsers and plotters, which are actually referenced in this book a little bit. So I feel like this is a relevant topic to discuss. She doesn't really know where a story is going until it gets there. Like with this thing with Patrick, it would have been something that just organically evolved. And I just kind of wanted to know, like when she put two and two together, that that's where the story was going. How did she feel about it? Was she like, mm, Jack, I don't know if this is a good idea or like, oh, this is perfect. And she said that she was extremely happy about it and she felt like it was a very natural thing to happen, which I totally agree. Jack has been on his own for so long. He really just needed somebody and Patrick needed him in the same way. You can see that as Patrick gets older, you can see their bond and like their father-son connection and it's beautiful. Of all the McClana clan kids, because there are so many, so many, I can't even keep track of them, especially all the McBain kids. <laughs> I don't know their names, honestly. I know the twins, and that's about it. Patrick, his parents were immigrants, and his dad died when he was really little, so it was just him and his mom. I think he's like 13 or 14 or something like that. He's James Cullen's age. When this story kind of picks up with him, he's his mom died a few months earlier. She got sick and they didn't have any medicine to take care of her. They couldn't afford a doctor. Patrick tried to take care of her as best he could with the knowledge that he had by working for the doctor down the street. He would like run errands for him and the doctor in his spare time would teach Patrick how to read and teach him what he knew about medicine, which God bless this doctor. Unfortunately, he died. So that source of money that Patrick was bringing in was gone. And then Patrick's mom got sick on top of that. And so when she died, he was just on his own and he couldn't afford rent, obviously, because he's 14 years old and they kicked him out. I understand like as a landlord, like you're running a business and you can't just let a bunch of orphan kids live rent free in your tenement, whatever. But like bro, he's 14 and he just got kicked out and he's now living on the street. Whole other problem. I know that. All right, moving on. When Amy and Jack meet Patrick, they immediately recognize that he's smart. He has a good head on his shoulders. He's very knowledgeable. He knows how to take care of himself. And he just needs somebody to look out for him because he's a kid and he's had to grow up so fast that you can just tell by the way he 
handles himself and the things that he says that he has seen way more in his young life than any kid should see. After JL gets attacked at the end of the book, he asks Amy, he says, was she hurt real bad? Like, you know. And Amy knows what he's insinuating, but she's also like, the fact that a 14-year-old kid knows about something as awful as rape just tells you what this kid has gone through in his short life. And there's a conversation that Amy has with him whenever Patrick realizes that they're not really going to London. He knows something's going on, but he's not sure what at this point. She says, Jack, JL, and I will take care of you. Wherever we go, you'll go too. You'll have food to eat, a bed to sleep in, warm clothes, and education, and lots of love. And for somebody so young that has been on their own for so long, that probably seemed too good to be true for him. But he really does love Jack and Amy like they love him. The little micro family that formed out of this book is just perfection. I will say, though, one thing that I am just so excited to learn more about, so I hope we do, is this evolving relationship between Patrick, JC, and Emily. They really do seem like when they first meet that they're just going to be the three musketeers and that they're best of friends. Honestly, Patrick has the biggest crush on Emily. Like you could just tell. And with the way he comes up to Amy, he's like, she makes my heart flutter. <laughs> so cute. I just want to know more about them growing up together because they really do seem like they would fit in well, especially with Emily being from 1881. There's just a lot that they have in common. And then Amy sees Patrick and Emily dancing together and JC is like glowering at Patrick from the, the side of the dance floor. And I'm just like, oh my God, I have to know. <laughs> Give me a short story. Give me something because I have to know how this all went down. <laughs> Patrick's crushing on Emily. JC's crushing on Emily. Emily would be lucky to have either one of them, but I need to know how it all went down. <laughs> it's great. I love it. A lot of book 13 deals with Patrick's trauma before he met Jack in the Diamond. I'm very excited about it. I mean, not excited about Patrick's trauma, but I'm very excited to learn more about him and like the things that he went through before he met Jack and Amy. Lori, I love JL and Kevin's wedding scenes. How oh, they're so, so beautiful. So beautiful. I'm going to talk about that next week. JL and Kevin and their whole story is the main show for next week. So I didn't forget it. If you don't hear me discussing it today, that's just what part two is about because I had to split it somewhere. Catherine, I think Charlotte put a protective barrier around Emily and kept the boys away. <laughs> Mama Bear at her finest. I could see Charlotte doing that because don't you mess with Charlotte. She is a tough cookie. I do like that how her and Amy balance each other out. Like Amy's just, she's tough, but she's also very laid back. It takes a lot to rile her up, but she obviously has the fortitude to break through glass ceilings. It's not that she doesn't care. It's not that she doesn't have a strong will, but like she's not type A like Charlotte, where like Charlotte's in your face a little bit. And like, I'm in control of the situation and uh, bless your heart, get out of my way. 
Amy is my next topic of discussion. And this is where we're really going to start to not only get into her personality, but get into the new kids on the block, the story of it all. One of the very important things to note about Amy is her generosity. Over and over again, you see her being drawn to her connections with people, wanting to gift things and like just being a generally sweet person. I love her to pieces. Amy is a perfect match for Jack. And you know, sometimes I do feel a little bit of a like, "Mm, I feel like these characters could have lined up a little bit better. But honestly, like Amy and Jack are just chef's kiss on that crap because I love them together. So we particularly see Amy's generosity showcased in this one particular scene where she gifts Maria and Isabella these hats for helping her out. And these hats are not inexpensive items, okay? They're very expensive. They came from a department store. She had them custom made. This is really a big thing that she's giving them these hats. This is something that they probably would not have been able to afford on their own. And she's giving them these kind of as a reward. She wants to reward Isabella for being kind to her, for helping her. She knows if Maria didn't get a hat, Isabella wouldn't have been able to fully enjoy her hat, which I think it's kind of the other way around. Like also Maria would not have been able to enjoy her hat if Isabella had not been given a hat as well. So I think there's some give and take on that a little bit, but this is the beginning of really seeing Amy's connection with Isabella. And this is a character that also grows a lot over the course of not only this book, but the series. She was a bit of a brat. At the beginning of this story, when I first read her and how, like, not nice she was to Amy because she thought that Amy was trying to take her man because she had a crush on Gabrielle. I love how Amy was like, she'd been around divas before, and while their energy may have been attractive, their personalities were not. Isabella is a great character. When we meet her, she's 17 attending Barnard College, which for 1909, a woman attending college is very impressive. And she's also one of the best students at that college, according to Amy, who's talked to all of her professors, because Amy's invested in making sure that Isabella gets the best of everything, that she has an education, she gets a good job, she pushes through those barriers and gets what she wants out of life. When we're talking about what is expected as 1909 goes versus where Isabella's headed, she's clearly a suffragette at its finest. She wants equality and she wants to be able to do the things that she wants to do. And she doesn't have, like, she makes no bones about it. She's not going to say, oh, I'm just a woman, so I can't do that. She's not going to sit on the sidelines about it. That's just not who she is. And I think that's especially true when we look at her potential suitors. Maria is very much set on the decision to get Isabella a husband and get her married so she can have babies. And Isabella is like, "Mm, pass. (laughs) She wants a career. She wants to be a doctor. She doesn't want to be married. She doesn't want to have children. A huge part of that is that a lot of the men that she meets and she's talking to, even professional men that she meets on the ship on the way over to London, they think it's great that she's going to college. When they find out she wants to be a doctor, they're like, hmm, 
no, women can't be doctors. Yeah. And that's the end of that conversation because Isabel is like, I don't need a man that's not going to be supportive of me. So take a hike, bro. And good on her, but she is clearly a woman meant for the 21st century. Amy recognizes that and fosters that fire in her. And I think that Amy particularly understands Isabella because Amy has also lost her parents. She understands that desire to make her parents proud, do justice to their memory, but also be the best version of yourself. And she recognizes, much like Jack does with Patrick, that sometimes people just need a little bit of extra help and it's okay to give that help. And I feel like that's kind of the big sister-ish relationship that Amy has with Isabella. I love where Maria goes in this with her relationship with Pops. He just needed a lady friend, okay? Like, I get that there's this epic love story between him and his wife. And I would never want to erase that. But, you know, sometimes people just need a companion. And Maria, likewise, loved her husband, Mickey. I think they find each other in a time in their lives where they really just need a companion. Someone to share the joys of life with and travel with and spend time with and enjoy their grandkids and their kids with, you know. So I really like this pairing that we've got going on between Maria and Pops. Maria kind of comes in the story because Isabella is living with her. Maria and Mickey took in Isabella after their son died. Isabella's mother died shortly after giving birth to her, so she's pretty much an orphan at this point, and her grandparents raised her. Maria has a very maternal glow about her. She just has those instincts. She wants to take care of people. We see that with how she interacts with Gabe, even, who's a guy that Mickey took in and helped get his feet under him. This is a really big theme that we see going on throughout this book in particular is more experienced people taking less experienced people under their wing and giving them knowledge and experience to grow and become better versions of themselves. That definitely happened between Mickey and Gabe. And so after Mickey died, Gabe agreed to help Maria and Isabella in any way that he could to make sure that they were taken care of. That kind of all fits in very nicely for the purposes of our story because Gabe comes home with a little stray puppy one day named Amy Spaulding and uh, Amy all of a sudden has a family in this foreign land of 1909 New York City. We don't find this out till like towards the end of the 1909 storyline, but Maria had a premonition a long time ago that a child in need would come to her and that she would take in that child and love and care for her as her own. And Maria had always thought that that child was Isabella. Obviously, Isabella was young and couldn't take care of herself when her father died. But what Maria realizes is that premonition was really Amy. And so that feeling, that gift points her towards staying with Amy and making sure that she's taken care of. So when Amy gives them the option to go back with them and Isabella really, really wants to go because she knows that there's more opportunities for her in the 21st century than there is in 1909, it's not really a decision for Maria at all. She's like, if you want me to go, yeah, let's go. Which shocked the hell out of me. I feel like I probably would have put up more of a 
I don't know about that <laughs> than uh, Maria did for sure. Because I was just like, wow, you are very trusting that they will just take care of you and everything is going to be all right. But hey, more power to you, I guess. The only one that was halfway not gung-ho about it was Gabe. I just felt like it would have been the complete opposite before I read what happened. If you had asked me which of the two would have been more willing to go, I definitely would have said Gabe. And the one cute thing that I love, and it's just like a very minor detail, but it's also one of those things that connect Amy and JL, is Maria calls Amy Ragazza Dolce. Obviously, JL's nickname from Pete is Ragazza Tosta. So you've got sweet girl and tough girl, both given those names by their adoring Italian counterparts. The big thing about Amy, whenever we're talking about headlines for her, she's a baseball analyst for ESPN, not something that you see women doing. And she did it. She made it to the top a lot of times, I feel like, when we see women doing well or making it to the top of a male-dominated world, there's always a lot of, well, what did they do to get there? Or do they really deserve it? Was that handed to them? Like, there's just such a level of sexism, even to this day, with women trying to infiltrate male-dominated industries. And, you know, Amy is loved by everybody. That's really important to note that However she made it to the top, she did it with nothing but guts and that she's very well respected by everybody that she meets and everybody she works with. There's not really much people can complain about when it comes to Amy. She's a very straight shooter. When we first meet Amy, we find out that she is dating the founder and executive producer of GBC Sports, Joe Gilbert. She had to be dating somebody that was an influential person so that her disappearance was noteworthy. So she's a big time baseball analyst for ESPN. He's a big time executive producer for this company. And they're kind of one of the power couples of New York City. So when she goes missing, it's a big freaking deal. It's one of those things where the investigation is high profile. All of a sudden, with each little unfolding of the investigation, the stakes raise higher and higher. And she did one of those stupid things that, you know, a lot of us in life make where, like, she bumped her head on her trunk lid or whatever. And she didn't go to the hospital. She didn't think she needed stitches. She didn't want them to shave her hair away. And then she goes missing. And when they search for blood in the trunk of her car, what do they find? And then all of a sudden, Joe is facing murder charges. It's a mess, but it's it's the thing that initiates her return to the 21st century to clear Joe. I think it's pretty good, honestly. Like, the, the whole murder aspect of this investigation is also one of the things that really interests me about this story and makes it fun and different, I think, from other books. As an ESPN analyst, Amy is really good at summing up a man's assets, so to speak. She generally has to do that for her job, but it also is a skill that translates over to life. She's very good at reading people. You can see that in how she describes Jack, describes Connor. She immediately takes them at a glance and 
labels them. So she thinks Jack is a lawyer type. She thinks Connor is a cop or a detective. Pretty much nails that. (laughs) She's very good at like reading people, not only their personalities, but their body language. She describes Jack as having the body of a pitcher, um, tall, a lanky lefty. Again, without even knowing it, like without even putting two and two together on who he is, she's nailed it that he's a pitcher. He just has that kind of body, that kind of way of holding himself. So that's something that Jack and Amy kind of have in common because they're both pretty decent judges of character in that respect. She has a fantastic memory. She uses this technique called Loki, which is an ancient technique used in Rome and Greece. I think it's like memory by association, if I'm remembering correctly. But she uses that to help her remember statistics and stuff for baseball. Overall, her being a baseball analyst is noteworthy in and of itself. But there are so many aspects of that job that bleed over into her personality and the way that she views the world and her perspective on things that are also important to note. So this is what I wanted to talk about next, which is baseball. It's the headliner of this book. But also, I'll be the first to admit that all the baseball in this book kind of turned me off from it at first. Obviously, that's not the case now because, like I said, it's my favorite in the series. But yes, it's a lot of baseball. And I, I'm i not a baseball person. <laughs> Amy eats, sleeps, and breathes baseball. And it's literally like takes precedence over family get-togethers, holidays, any other engagements or obligations. Like, no, baseball comes first. (laughs) And I think probably one of the scenes that just really clicked for me, I mean, yes, we hear so often her referring to this historical fact or that play or that game, whatever. But what really hit home for me with her love of baseball is a scene towards the beginning where she is coaching these boys on their techniques and stuff and helping them be better players. Her father was a baseball coach, college level. While she resented him for spending so much time with his players and not enough time with her, he also gave her her love for baseball. She feels compelled to share that love with other people, especially these young kids who clearly already love the sport. It's just really fantastic to see her share that love in such a a unique way. Because, you know, obviously she loves it enough to make a career out of it. She was a Olympic level softball player. But taking the time to coach young children and fostering their love for the game just takes it to another level, in my opinion. So not only do we see like the straight up inundation of baseball facts and memorabilia into this story, but we also see that love of the game and her complete absorption into that world and the way that she describes things. Whenever she has slid under the bed in Catherine Lilly's bedroom at the beginning of the book and she says, it was like standing in the batter's box, bottom of the ninth, down by three, Bases loaded, two outs and a 3-2 count with the pitcher winding up for the pitch. She held her breath. This could go either way. (laughs) Even when she has tense experiences, she 
immediately defaults into baseball and like how it all relates. Like that's how she comprehends situations. And we see that in the end where she's talking about this whole situation with Steven and she's in the cargo hold with him. All of a sudden we get this description of things where she says, if she was on first base from the sound of his voice, she put him somewhere near center field. So she's trying to judge distance-oriented where everybody is based on how she would judge that if she were standing on a baseball diamond. We saw that similarly when she was trying to decide what time of day it was because after standing out in the sun in the middle of a field baking for so many hours of her life, she was on a first-name basis with the position of the sun. (laughs) So baseball is not just a love for her. It's a way of life. And I loved how Catherine incorporated that into how Amy perceives the world around her. I loved in particular this one quote, which I just think is so evocative. It says, The gestalt of baseball invaded her senses. The smell of peanuts and beer, the whack of the ball hitting leather gloves, The sight of players, happy as young boys, roaming in newly mown grass, and vulgar language peppering the hum of conversations in the stands. Like, can't you just picture it? You can smell it, and you can hear it, and you can just picture yourself standing there. I did not know much about baseball prior to reading this book. But even having said that, it made me curious. Like, this book made me curious about the game. It's a little bit slow for my taste, but it's like, you know, maybe I could learn to love it (laughs) type thing. The Polo Grounds and the Giants, I kind of wanted to look a little bit more into them for the purposes of this book club, but not overwhelming amounts of information. I just kind of wanted to like surface level. And so I ended up finding out some useful information about the polo grounds. There were actually three different stadiums known as the polo grounds. The original polo grounds was actually where polo was played. And early on in the days of baseball, they used the field as a dual purpose. They used it for polo, but they also used it for baseball. And then when the Mets and the Giants kind of got too big for their britches, they decided to build the new polo grounds, which was constructed in 1889. And this was built on 155th Street, but it's not the polo grounds that we see in the diamond brooch. That is actually the third rendition of the polo grounds, the new, new polo grounds. In the late 1800s, early 1900s, there was the initial attempt to get like a player's union organized to raise wages for baseball players. And when that happened, a lot of the players left the original giants and went to the new giants who had a stadium built on the same stretch of land owned by William Coogan or something, James Coogan, something like that. And that park was originally called Brotherhood Park. So all the really good players that thought they were good enough to be in a player's league went over to Brotherhood Park and played for that league's giants. But that only lasted for about a season, and then they all came crawling back. But the new polo grounds, like Polo Grounds 2... The facilities weren't as nice, so they all just kind of moved over to Brotherhood Park and 
renamed Brotherhood Park the Polo Grounds. And that is the Polo Grounds that was built to host 14,000 fans and is the famous Polo Grounds that Amy attends games at in the Diamond Brooch. So if we remember earlier, whenever I was talking about Jack, and they were talking about whether this was a one brooch or a three brooch mission. And he says, I've never been interested in dating a jock. Well, ironically enough, Amy even describes herself as like not having your average jock's body type. She's very curvy. She's got like a good set of boobs and a bubble butt. I'm like, well, that's apropos because Jack doesn't need the average woman by any means. There's a scene where Jack is in the carriage with JL while they're going to the courthouse. She asks him to loosen her corset because she's about to pass out. He's finally able to, but she kind of questions, you have big hands like Kevin. How did you learn to do that, basically? And he says, as a teenager, I wanted to be able to unbutton, unsnap, or unhook uh, obstacles. <laughs> I practiced on Charlotte's Civil War dresses until I perfected my delicate skills. <laughs> He's such a freaking player. <laughs> but anyway, this scene in the carriage gets a payoff because then after him and Connor collect Amy and they get on their way back to New York City from Pittsburgh, he has to kind of return the favor with Amy in helping her tie her corset and do up her buttons. Whenever he goes to wake her up, she's just dressed in nothing but her shift. He can't help but notice her body and all its assets. He's just, God bless him. He he makes a joke out of it and says, maybe I should try to get a job as a lady's maid. But he's very attracted to Amy from the get-go. There's this intense chemistry between the two of them. I feel like Jack was just... Didn't know what to expect going into this story at all. I mean, I feel like he had this idea of what was going to take place, but was just so far off base. Amy actually grew up in a middle class family, didn't have a lot of money, but they were comfortable. And then all of a sudden, out of the blue, she inherits a multi-million dollar estate from her first cousin three times removed, Lorette Cooper. <laughs> it's a $20 million estate with a 35-room, four-story, French Renaissance-style white marble mansion on Riverside Drive. So <laughs> this is a woman who went from living comfortably to being so rich she doesn't know what to do with her money <laughs> in the matter of a phone call. And I mean, what a problem to have. God, that would be such a burden. <laughs> Amy's attorney mentions that Lorette had always been a globetrotter. She just traveled the world. When Amy walks into this house, there's just crap upon crap, basically. There's ancient Egypt artifacts. There's artwork from Italy. There's priceless books from all over and literally like millions of dollars worth of antiques. Amy wonders if Lorette was a globetrotter or a time traveler. Whenever she actually ends up time traveling back, she had possession of this brooch. So did she go back and forth in time or just like travel around and that's how she gathered all this stuff? So I asked Catherine because that got my wheels turning and I couldn't turn my brain off. And I was like, okay, I have to know, was Lorette ever a time traveler or was she just a world traveler? 
Catherine says, I never had a feeling one way or the other. Since she hasn't popped up again, I tend to think she was a globetrotter, but she might yet show up. You never know. Probably looking like she wasn't a time traveler, but I do think that would be cool if she popped up somewhere. Although, since she died childless and alone, I'm guessing she probably never met her soulmate. So that kind of does tend to lessen the likelihood, I guess, that she was a time traveler. So Jack was obviously knocked on his ass, basically, by what happened with Carolina Rose. And there's not a lot at this point that would have drawn him into another McLenna clan adventure. Even his curious St. Bernard has not been enough to tempt him back into the time travel business. And the only thing that could have possibly done that is Carolina Rose. In some way, shape, or form. And that's exactly what we get. Whenever I first read Amy describing Catherine Lilly's portrait, and it said that Catherine Lilly had these vibrant, violet-colored eyes, I was like, hold up. <laughs> that's not a coincidence. That's exactly what like my internal monologue was in that moment. So I really did like that aspect of this book because Jack's so deep in his own grief that you have to have something to draw him back into the story. Without Carolina Rose, there's no way for him to meet Amy. And if he did, because I mean, he did know about Amy being missing before he met Carolina Rose, he wouldn't have been in the right emotional state. Like he wouldn't have the life experiences that he has to be the right version of himself for her. It all slides in very nicely together. But nonetheless, there's a lot of questions about how all of this is going down. Connor notices the similarities and kind of gets Jack involved. But being the good cop that he is, he's looked for any possible connection he can find for these women. Catherine Lilly and Carolina Rose grew up in completely different countries. One of them's from Scotland. One of them's from France. And obviously back in the 1900s or 1800s, they didn't have DNA. Whoever was on your birth certificate was your parents, period. And there was no way to prove otherwise. So it was a bit of a dead end until David ran the pictures of Catherine Lilly and Carolina Rose through facial recognition software and came up with a 99% match. So they're likely identical twins. Like there's a 1% margin of error there. The complexity of this situation, <laughs> trying to wrap my head around it, right? Slowly but surely over the course of the next several chapters, they're able to place together what they believe has happened. And what they're thinking is that Catherine Lilly's adoptive mother, Allison Morrison Taylor, had a sister, Gracie, who, according to Kit, eloped with a Frenchman by the last name of Arias. What they're thinking happened is that Gracie and Arias had twin daughters, but Gracie passed away, so Arias decided he couldn't take care of them, gave one of them to his mother to raise, which was Carolina Rose, and gave one of them to Gracie's sister Allison to raise, which was Catherine Lilly, and didn't tell his mother or Gracie's sister that this baby had a twin sister. Jack never met Allison Morrison Taylor. That was the whole motivation for going was so that he could get answers from Allison Morrison Taylor. But she died in July 10th of 1909. 
they never made it to Scotland to ask her these questions. And given how much of a piece of work Catherine Lily Sterling is, didn't really get any answers on that front and really had no desire to. Jack knows that if he doesn't go on this mission, he's never going to have the answers that he needs. He needs to know how this story ends for his own emotional well-being. Like He has to be able to close the book. And this is his last chance to do so because Allison Morrison Taylor passes away relatively in quick succession from where they end up in, in history. They get there in June of 1909, set sail. They never obviously get there because of everything that happens on the ship. But yeah, within like a month of them landing in 1909. When Jack starts to show interest in this mystery... He gets into the McClinaclan server and tries to access the 1881 file to kind of like rejog his memory and go back through some of the notes and reports that people have filed about the event. But the file is protected and he can't get in. And remember in the last book club when I said this was going to come back to bite them in the ass that they didn't tell Jack about it? Well, here you go. You know me, I don't agree with dishonesty that is never a viable option in my opinion because things always and i mean always go south so this is kind of where things start to unravel jack is extremely hurt because he feels like they didn't trust him with the truth not only that but he's struck by this completely new wave of grief because carolina rose wasn't the person he thought she was because we find out that she knew about the Confederate gold. She's the one that put the picture in the image of his tattoo. So while she may have had a change of heart at the last minute, and that's what got her killed, she knew about it all the same. All this time, for the past eight months, he's been grieving the loss of this woman who he had this mental image in his head of, and to find out that she was a completely different person just didn't feel good. When he accuses them of saying, well, you just didn't think I could handle the truth. JL looks at him and says, no, Jack, we didn't think you would want to know the truth. When you're grieving someone, the last thing that you want to hear is that they were a terrible person. You want to cherish the good memories that you have of them and memorialize them for all the wonderful things that they did, which for a person that you knew for like 24 hours is kind of a stretch in my opinion, but hey. Not saying it couldn't happen. With that in mind, the last thing that they figured he would want is for a reality check, you know? I guess I understand why they didn't tell him, but I still don't think it was the right call. Like, I think it was the coward's way out, hiding the truth from him. They were afraid of the consequences and thought, well, we'll cross that bridge when we get to it. And they did. <laughs> to be fair, David and JL took the bull by the horns. But I just feel like it could have been avoided. My biggest question through all of this, if I'm being honest, is what did the Sterlings actually know? <laughs> because there was a lot of confusion on what they knew, how they knew it, and what their role was in all of this. Catherine Lilly is a very intriguing character for Jack because of her connection to Carolina Rose. She looks so much like her twin sister. So he feels a connection to her in a way. Like he's kind of transferred some of his 
love and affection for Carolina Rose onto Catherine Lilly. He's projecting that on her because he's drawn an emotional connection between the two. What he comes to find out is that Catherine Lilly is really a cold-hearted bitch <laughs> and is not anything like Carolina Rose and, in fact, inadvertently caused her death. In her selfish actions of feeling like Carolina Rose was basically going to take the spotlight off of her when people learned that she existed and that her and Catherine Lilly were twins, Catherine Lilly arranged with Carolina Rose's uncle to have Carolina Rose shunted off to San Francisco to do this project that inevitably ended up getting her killed with the Confederate gold. My curiosity lies with Sterling, like Catherine Lilly's husband. What did he know? He tells Jack, Catherine Lilly didn't know that she was adopted. Nobody ever told her. That's the key. Nobody ever told Catherine Lilly she was adopted. But Catherine Lilly's adoptive father told Sterling that Catherine Lilly was adopted. Sterling knew, but didn't really know about the twin sister at all. And then, apparently, somebody told Catherine Lilly and Sterling that there was a woman that looked strangely like Catherine Lilly working at the Met. So they hired this investigator to look into Carolina Rose, and he followed her out to San Francisco. And she disappeared. Obviously, we know she was taken to the 21st century where she died of her injuries sustained from that whole mess. I really want to know, and for some reason, I don't know why this bugs me so much, how Sterling and Catherine Lilly and Aureus all got hitched up, how they hatched this plan, how much money they gave Aureus, Lord knows. I'm betting somebody told Catherine Lilly about it. Catherine Lilly told Sterling. Sterling kind of informed Catherine Lilly that, hey, uh, by the way, you're adopted. And then they hired this investigator to follow her out to San Francisco after they made communications with Arias and, like, arranged this whole thing, is my guess. But, my God, like, how heartless do you have to be? And I like that Jack literally gave them this lecture. He tells Catherine Lilly, he says, her mother died, her father gave her up, her grandmother sent her to Paris to live, her sister sent her away out of jealousy. Her uncle killed her. A beautiful, innocent woman, and everybody betrayed her. I mean, not to say that Carolina Rose made the right decision for every decision she ever made. She definitely made mistakes, but also for somebody who never really had family, never had a bond with people, she was just trying to do the right thing for the family that she did have, in her opinion, so... Yeah, it was such a tragic story for them. After Amy travels back to 1909, I love how she's like convinced that she's tripping on psychedelic mushrooms <laughs> and that that is a way more viable option than the fact that she may have actually traveled back in time using magical stones. But she's able to kind of put two and two together and she realizes by her knowledge of early 20th century history from all her baseball and all of that, that She's likely somewhere between 1905 and 1912, just based on what everybody's wearing. And of course, because the brooches like to place you in convenient places, she has landed April 15th, 1909, the home opener game for the Giants 1909 season. Our little baseball nerd is so excited. <laughs> 
So there's a few things about the 1909 time travel experience that really stick out to me. The first one is just the use of the New York City traffic as like a through line for all the craziness that is happening both in the story and in physical New York City traffic in 1909 pre-controlled intersections. It sounds like a flipping nightmare, and it is definitely something that every single one of our time travelers takes note of. Amy, Connor, Pete, everybody, they're like, this is such a mess. Amy obviously doesn't have the wherewithal, like the knowledge to be able to do anything about it, but Pete and Connor do, and they're action people. So of course they're going to do something about it, right? It's this kind of through line of using this one little piece of fact that would stick out to time travelers because in the 21st century we're so used to you stop at stop signs you stop at stoplights red means stop green means go pedestrians have the right of way more used to how this works so i'm sure going into 1909 new york city if we were just dropped in pre-traffic control where everybody was just going willy-nilly and crossing the road at their own peril that would be a disaster, and that would definitely stick out in your brain as something different, something other from what you're used to. Using this tool as something every character has as a commonality, and using that to bridge the gaps and make these connections between Amy, who doesn't know that Jack and the group of people have come back for her, but she reads about them in the paper. The topic of traffic control gets her attention. She's reading the article. But then when she's reading the article, there are all these little red flags of like, well, that sounds familiar to me, but that's a foreign concept for 1909. And she's able to put together that these are probably time travelers that are doing this. So that raises her antenna for when she runs into Jack and Connor just a little bit later. She's not completely caught off guard because she'd already known about the article and the time travelers in the article. Amy makes a comment right at the end of her first day in 1909. The quote says, In the last 36 hours, three men had come to her rescue. Three honorable men had taken a chance on her. She had a bed to sleep in, clothes to wear, food to eat, a challenging job opportunity, a side gambling operation, Giants baseball, and most importantly, friends. And for now, that was enough. So that very neatly sums up her time travel experience, at least in the beginning of this. She's there for two months before JL, Kevin, and Jack, and all of them show up to come after her. So we're going to take a moment to kind of break it down and talk about her three honorable men. And I say that in quotes because only one of them is really honorable. <laughs> and we'll talk about him first. Mr. Gabriel Moretti, or Gabe, as I'll refer to him because that's a lot easier to say. <laughs> Isn't he just wonderful? He's fantastic. I think he's, other than Patrick, my next favorite new character for this book. He is a unique addition to the clan because of his life circumstances, I guess. He was an immigrant. He didn't have anything when he got to the city. And slowly but surely, he's living the American dream. He's working hard and making his way in the world, becoming more and more successful as he goes. 
But this aspect of his character is what draws him to Amy because he feels a kinship with her in that respect. He tells her, he says, you remind me of myself when I first came here. You seem confused, but informed. You look at your surroundings with awe, much like I did, yet you're American and you're not in a foreign country. So he knows there's something off about her, but he helps her anyway because he's just a really kind individual and he knows what it's like to be in a strange city without two pennies to rub together and wouldn't wish that on anybody. He's just very hospitable and bends over backwards, like goes out of his way to help her. She's a very good judge of character. And so despite how Gabe is wanting her to perceive him, she kind of has the feeling that like his bank account is not as healthy as he would have her believe, if that makes sense. He's traveling around with quite a bit of cash in his pocket. $15 for back in 1909 is like a pretty good wad of cash. He has a car instead of like a horse and carriage and they just have such a unique relationship, Amy and Gabe. The big brother element here in this story is really good. You get Gabe feeling that way towards Amy. You've got Connor with JL. You've got Jack being protective of both women. Gabe's also like that with Isabella. It's just very, it's one of my favorite dynamics to read and to write, honestly. There's a moment I felt kind of bittersweet about it because he does this really cute thing where he fixes her hat. She like tears it off and throws it down. And she's very upset about something that happened in the game. And he picks it up, dusts it off, like pulls the hat pin out of his sleeve and like repins it real quick. And she's wondering how he learned to do that. He says that he has three sisters still in Italy. He hasn't seen them in years. I felt so sad about that. He literally left everything in Italy to come to America. And Granted, like, he's made his way in the world and he's a very impressive individual, but I can't help but wonder about that family. In the back of my mind, I know we get so many connections to Kit and Cullen's line, and I'm wondering if there's ever going to be a possibility of, I don't know, somehow drawing that connection back to Gabe's sisters, because it wouldn't even have to have the same last name or anything like that. I think it would be cool for him to meet descendants of his sisters when he's out and about in Italy and like just so naturally as this protective big brother type, Gabe is super suspicious of Connor and Pete when they come to his office and start asking questions about Amy. Amy has told him she doesn't have any family. And so these guys are here saying she's their cousin and asking all these intrusive questions and wondering where they can find her. And as a guy that's like pretty street smart, something's off. He can't quite put his finger on it. He doesn't feel like they have any ill intentions because also he's a very good judge of character. But something's just off. The same way that he can tell that something's off with Amy. His spidey senses are tingling. Let's put it that way. Gabe actually tells Amy, he says, You're a ragazza dolce, but very odd. I'll wait for your full explanation, but when the time comes and I need to know the truth, you will tell me whether you're ready to or not. So like I said, he knows something's off about them, but he's not stupid enough to ask questions, if that makes sense, because he knows that there is a time and a place for everything and it's not it right now. But they'll tell him when he needs to know. He fits in very well with the clan and Kevin actually makes a comment that 
Gabe reminds him a lot of David in how resourceful he is, how smart he is. Pete says, or maybe it's Connor, says, Gabe sees solutions before problems even come up. I've never seen anything like it. And then somebody else says, yeah, I feel like you could drop Pete and David in the middle of a wilderness and David would make weapons and hunt for food, but Gabe would find transportation and like all this stuff out of the wilderness. He's on another level. Like he's just a great addition to the team and will fit in seamlessly. He's sweet and generous and a fantastic personality, but... Yeah, he's a little in the dark and he knows that, which he's not comfortable with that feeling. He likes to know what's going on, but I think he also understands because they show him the iPhone and he just can't make sense of it. I think they know there will come a time when they have to be honest with him and he knows that too, but they're going to put off the discussion until it's a need to know thing. The only concern whenever discussions are had about who they're going to bring back and who would make a good addition to the family and all of this. Everybody loves Gabe. Everybody loves Maria and Isabella as well. And Patrick, they're on the fence about, but I think that's more about like them questioning Jack's judgment than whether he would fit in well with the family. The only questionable choice about the decision to bring Gabe back is that Connor and Pete think he might have a gambling problem. But Elliot actually addresses this later in the book whenever he's talking to Meredith. Elliot says that he feels like he's a pretty good judge of character and he had a conversation with Gabe and Gabe said that he's always used gambling as a way to close business deals. And so while it may look like he lost, he always gains something worth more value in return. The straw that broke the camel's back kind of with Gabe's gambling for Connor and Pete was that he lost his car before they went on the SS New York over to London. But what they didn't know about that situation is that he closed this freight deal with this guy that he lost the car to that was worth three or four times the amount of the car that he lost. So he'll make it back and he'll buy another car when he gets home, basically. I think it was Connor talking to JL and he says, well, what the hell is thoroughbred racing if not high stakes gambling? They're like, um, Elliot is not going to have a problem with this. Trust me. <laughs> I like that Elliot's so open-minded about it. And he even tells Meredith, he's like, look, I think he's a great addition to the clan, especially when we start pushing into the Italian market on things. He's going to really be able to help us hone in and like focus on our business dealings over there. So very good. I'm a big fan of Gabe and uh, I like that he becomes a bigger character in future stories. Angela, I was glad to see some Italian blood in the mix with this story. Catherine, that's probably why he wasn't excited about going to the future. He didn't want to start over again. Oh yeah. I mean, it definitely was. He didn't want to start over and he definitely only came because Maria and Isabella did and he felt like he owed Mickey. So he wanted to look out for them. And also, I think he felt a bond with Amy as well. So he felt like he needed to be there to help her. Lori, it really pisses me off when they question Jack's judgment about Patrick, especially the way JL acts. I was not a fan of JL <laughs> for a lot of this book. Like, and I love that Connor just told her to chill the fuck out. Basically, like, you're getting on everybody's nerves. Take a hike. <laughs> Only Big Brother could talk to her like that. Diane, gambling concerns would naturally be an issue for the McClinic clan. Integrity is high on their list of virtues. I mean, I understand why they were concerned about it, but I'm glad that Elliot 
got to the bottom of it and was like open-minded about it instead of taking Pete and Connor's word for it and not really investigating. Stephen Thompson and the Provident Loan Society. So the Provident Loan Society is a company that still exists to this day. It was founded in 1894 following the financial panic of 1893 by Solomon Loeb, Jacob Schiff, who we meet both of them in Bloodstone. And then we've got Alfred Mason, J.P. Morgan, Gustav Schwab, and Cornelius Vanderbilt. So some heavy hitters there. Still very famous on the New York City scene, those names. What the Provident Loan Society was, was a nonprofit organization established with the goal of providing low-interest, short-term loans in exchange for a property pledge. Basically like a pawn shop, but a high-end pawn shop with much lower interest rates and uh, short-term loans. So it was basically perfect for Amy in that respect. Even to this day, like they still specialize in providing gold and jewelry-backed loans 150 years later. When Amy shows up, she basically fits right in and they don't really bat an eye whenever she produces this jewelry and asks for a loan because this is what they were dealing with on a daily basis. But this diamond brooch that she's got is 30 carats, which is worth roughly $300,000. So that initial offer of $75 that they give her is absolutely ludicrous, and she recognizes that. I'm glad that she knew a little bit about money and finances. God bless Joe Gilbert. Even though she kind of tuned out most of his information, she did listen a little bit when he was talking about the stock market and stuff like that. And her proactive ring shopping preparations helped her to be able to show what this diamond brooch was worth. She ends up encountering Mr. Stephen Thompson, who at the time is the president of the Provident Loan Society. And he's a banker and she knows that she kind of needs to speak his language to impress him and get the money that she needs to kind of get her feet under her, get some new clothes, find a place to live. And then she can start to work back and buy back her brooch, basically, because she's used it as collateral for this loan that she needs to make a living. And she ends up being able to negotiate with him by telling him that she wants a portfolio built on profitability, not tangible assets. She wants to be able to repay the loan within six weeks by showing him that she does have a sound mind on her shoulders, that she knows what she's talking about and how to handle money. He feels a little bit more comfortable in giving her such a large sum of money, but obviously they're not going to give her anywhere near what she's used to getting as far as value for that brooch. They're only going to give her about $75,000. She does get 180 days to pay it back at a rate of 3.75%, which is a tick under and over what she was asking for. But I feel like it was a very strong negotiation on her part. And she feels like she's made a friend in Stephen Thompson. He's given her investment advice. He's put her in touch with a place where she can buy clothes, where she can open up a savings account, etc. According to the store clerks that she works with at the Iron Palace, he seems to be a good guy. He took care of his invalid wife and really just by all accounts is a stand-up individual. Nobody ever really had any complaints about him. There weren't any red flags, really. He seemed like he was just doing a good thing and being kind. By the time the McLennas get into 1909 and they start to really dig and rescue Amy from all of this stuff that's going on, they're finding out that Amy's brooch is gone. 
Obviously, Amy doesn't know about this at the time. What's happened, according to Stephen Thompson, there was a Scrivener's error and Amy's loan was recorded for a two-month term instead of a six-month term and the brooch was sold at auction to Diamond Jim Brady for $310,000. He then gifted that brooch to Lillian Russell, who is leaving on the SS New York for London within two days' time. So very short window to get shit done and they know they have to get the brooch back ASAP. Thompson's not being super helpful, but then when Amy actually goes and confronts Thompson about it whenever she gets back to New York, he says that the guy that did the Scrivener's error, it wasn't actually an error and that he changed the date on the paperwork whenever Thompson wasn't looking, tipped Diamond Jim off. Diamond Jim paid him basically a finder's fee and then Mr. Carter quit his job and left town and was never heard from again. So now it's boiling down to the fact that this wasn't just an error. This was fraud. Like somebody stole her brooch from her and now she's very angry. I mean, I think she would be even more angry if she knew the truth at this point. But things are starting to unfold in a very uncomfortable way at this point. Lots of issues going on. Very nuanced plot. Lots of connections. Things that I'm still like piecing together rereads and rereads afterwards especially when we get onto the ship and we're talking about the brooch being taken back or like stolen off of Lillian by mustache cop and the mustache cop ending up showing up dead in the cargo hold when Steven's holding Amy prisoner I'm still very blurry on how all of that is going on my guess I think this is what is going on because they're talking about how Mustache Cop made the connection between JL, Jack, and then Amy. There was a guess that the Provident Loan Society filed a claim for the brooch, and that's how the cop got in contact with Thompson and then kind of pieced it all together. That was like the initial assumption. But I'm thinking that Thompson probably knew somebody who knew somebody that knew that this mustache cop was like a dirty cop and they were working together somehow. And then it it ended up maybe mustache cop was helping Steven try to recover it. But then mustache cop ended up making the connection of JL being involved. And that's when he decided to just kill JL, take the brooch and escape a millionaire. So I love how whenever they're putting this all together, Jack says, if I was writing this story, the cop would plot to kill the heroine, steal the brooch, sell it in London and retire in Europe as a millionaire. And Pete says, I wouldn't be at all surprised if you're right. (laughs) Jack, whenever he puts all this together, he's just like deadpan at Pete. And he just says, unfucking believable. (laughs) Thompson has this one-sided attraction towards Amy. One-sided is key here. He's very enthralled with her because she's unlike anything he's ever seen before. Like she just, she knows about baseball. She knows about money. She knows about the stock market. But she's not interested in marriage, and that's just not something that women in 1909 generally market themselves as, so to speak. They have dinner several times, Amy and Stephen do. On Amy's side, it's just like totally platonic, harmless. She doesn't intend anything out of it, but she like gets the vibe that Stephen's lonely, that he's like in search of a companion or whatever, but she doesn't think that she's 
sending out those signals to him. To be honest, I don't know if it comes down to signals with a man like him. I think that he may see her as an easy mark because she's a woman alone with no family. What a jackass. After Jack comes onto the scene, Amy starts to think about how whenever a fan would come up and interact with her and Stephen was there, he would just be super rude to them. And then when she inquired about it, he was like, well, I just don't want to share you. I'm sorry. I'm not yours to share. (laughs) And I don't think that it really is something that even really hits home or connects until she meets Jack, who's the complete opposite, is not territorial and is very sweet and like lets her be herself. And then she's like, hmm, yeah, that's hella red flags right there. And she just kind of, I think, chalks it up to, oh, whatever, I'm just being weird. No, you're never being weird. If you feel strongly that somebody is being weird, they probably are being weird. Listen to your gut. And that's what Amy learns in this story. And she even says after her whole encounter with Stephen, where she tells him that she's marrying Jack and like blah, blah, blah. She says if Jack ever offered to go somewhere with her again, she wouldn't turn him down. Like she's just so uncomfortable by this situation with Stephen. And then the jackass follows her onto the ship. And I'm sorry, if she wasn't already seeing like five red flags, she's better be seeing a hundred now. Like what the hell is he doing there? Like, he just instantly perked up when she said, oh, yeah, I'm going on the SS New York. First off, if you were getting funky vibes, why the fuck would you tell him where you were going? I guess this is 21st century knowledge, which she has. So I'm like, no, I think it's Crime Junkie. It says, be weird, be rude, stay alive. I love that podcast. And it's so true. Like, be weird, be rude, stay alive. So he follows her on the ship and hell ensues. I knew he was weird, but I didn't know it was going this direction. Like, I thought he might, like, try to kill her. I did not see it coming with the woman and her two children and the connection with Mustache Cop and everything. Like, I was like, you have got to be kidding me. What? (laughs) Yeah, so much for him being harmless. Like, Jesus. He just ends up being, like... I'll just read this to you. It's disgusting, but I have to read it. He says, you can't get away from me. You'll only make me mad and you don't want to do that. My wife made me mad. I didn't make enough money to suit her. I didn't socialize with the right people. She was disgusted by her wifely duty, but she learned to submit and so will you. And I'm like, um, no, I'm good. Thanks. Ew. How he could have put up such a front to where nobody had any freaking clue that not only was he a sadistic serial killer, basically, is what we're learning, because even if he didn't kill the woman and her two children, he definitely killed his wife. Amy, get the hell out of there! (laughs) Like, this was just so intense on so many levels. (laughs) And it just makes it so much more complicated when JL's involved, because Amy can't just run anymore. Like, she, she can't leave JL. When she ends up killing Stephen... Her adrenaline's kind of going, and she doesn't really think about it. She just does what she has to do to survive. But afterward, she feels a sense of guilt for taking his life. I guess I get that. Like, she's a good person, and she just killed somebody, and, like, that takes a toll on on one. But he tried to kill her. I guess if you're a good person, like, taking life no matter how or why is probably not going to feel good. But I hope she forgives herself. I hope she gives herself grace for protecting herself because that's what she was doing. She was saving her life and saving JL's life. 
But holy smokes, this was a crazy story. Two down, one to go. And the last man that we're going to discuss in this section is Mr. Bennett. James Gordon Bennett was the publisher and editor of the New York Herald newspaper in New York City. This was a guy that I was like, oh, we've got somebody who's like not a sexist pig. Well, that's surprising. Don't put the cart before the horse, Chelsea. (laughs) He's definitely a sexist pig. She does a really good job of negotiating for herself and getting her five columns a week at $10 a column because she knows that's what she's going to need to pay rent and make a living and be able to save enough to get her loan paid off so she can get her brooch back. She's very cognizant of how this is all going to go down. I think she does a really great job of negotiating with Bennett, and he seems genuinely open to having a female reporter, and he even agrees to put her articles on the front page of the newspaper, and he gives her her byline and all of that jazz. He seems very open-minded to it until it becomes inconvenient for him, and then he's very quick to throw it all back on her and be like, oh, no, no, see... If you were a man, a man wouldn't go to South Carolina to take care of his ailing father. A man would put his job first. (laughs) No, a man would make his wife do it. (laughs) I love it when she said that. I was like, uh, yeah, no, no. And he was like, and it would be her responsibility to do so. And I was like, okay, yeah, we're still in 1909. Just checking. This is something for Amy that she's never experienced in her life. This is somebody who made her way up the ranks of a male-dominated industry, and did it with a plum. She's no stranger to sexual bias or favoritism, maybe even slight sexism, but this misogyny that she's experiencing with Bennett is just absolutely ridiculous. She's baffled. She doesn't even know how to handle it at this point. She's just so mad. The more he talks, the more her blood boils. And eventually she just spouts off with this whole tale about how, you know, I'm not going to take care of my ailing father. I'm going on a European honeymoon and I'm going to marry Jack Mallory. (laughs) We're like, whoa, you overstepped, girl. Calm down. He changes his tune very quickly again when he finds out, oh, you're getting married. Well, I can market that because you have a lot of female readers and I'm going to send a reporter to take pictures of you while you leave. OMG. This guy. I mean, he's nowhere on Stephen Thompson level of crap she's dealing with. And granted, he tones that down a little bit when he finds out that the man that she's marrying is Jack Mallory, but... Also, I'm not really sure how we got on the Jack Mallory being the guy that assassinated Lincoln because he would be in his, like, 80s. (laughs) I mean, I guess it's not out of the question. I think it's more so the name, Mallory. It still has a negative connotation at this point in history. And, like, for her to change her name to Mallory, that is anyway associated with the man who even was falsely accused of attempting to assassinate President Lincoln and was exonerated, by the way, but somehow that's going to impugn her reputation. My God. I think that Jack just handles this entire situation with such grace. He really is just something special, isn't he? And I mean, when she tells him how this story unfolds, he literally just laughs 
Because he knows that no matter what she's about to tell him, there's no way that she could have fucked up the situation more than he already has. <laughs> like, trust me, I've been there. I've been around the block a few times. And remember how I said I was the problem child? Well, it's okay. Everything is peaches and cream compared to the screw ups I've had. He just can't get mad at her. He tries to get mad at her when he finds out that she took this massive loan in exchange for the brooch. But even then, he he can't really be mad at her because he makes a comment even whenever he first arrives in Central Park and he pins the brooch to the inside of his pocket and he says he hoped to God that no person was ever forced to throw away a brooch out of a choice between their own safety and the safety of the brooch ever again. Amy had to do that, essentially. She had to pawn the brooch to make her way in the world. While he was mad that she took this loan for this exorbitant amount to buy clothes and have a place to live, how dare she? He can't be mad at her. He can't stay mad at her anyway, because she literally made probably even a smarter decision than Jack did by just throwing it out the window. Jack's cute because, you know, after all this stuff that happened with Carolina Rose, he kind of swore off women. He's been just doing his own thing for like eight months at this point. And he's actually kind of excited to be pretend engaged to Amy <laughs> for this whole trip. This luxury sailing adventure across the ocean, every night promenading in the moonlight with champagne dinners. He's just got this romantic idea of what it's going to be with this cruise across the ocean. Because remember, at this point, he knows they're soulmates. He's fighting it tooth and nail. He knows that even if he allows himself to fall head over heels, she's taken. And that's not likely to change anytime soon. And if she goes back to the 21st century, she's been honest with him and telling him that she intends to marry Joe. That's the plan. So what good would it do for him to let himself fall for her? It's not going to do any good at all. I think he's relishing being able to spend time with her in an essentially platonic way and like get to know her. He really likes her and they get each other on a level that they're comfortable with each other. That's very important for people like Amy and Jack who they're very career driven individuals and don't really have a person, so to speak. I mean, Joe is Amy's person, but just from reading about their relationship, like there's not a lot of enthusiasm there. It's almost like Amy just expects Joe to propose to her because they've been together for so long and it just seems like the natural next step, but there doesn't really seem like any attraction or longing there at all. Not like what Amy experiences with Jack when they're separated for all of that time. Jack ends up going to Tiffany's and getting this ring for Amy. It's a emerald cut sapphire with diamonds around it. For somebody who's never gone ring shopping at all, never really voiced what they wanted in a ring, this ring is exactly it. It's like Jack plucked it out of her mind and purchased it. So when he opens his mouth and does this uh, phenomenal proposal that he would have given to Carolina Rose. Like, that's the whole point of this. This is cathartic for him because this is the proposal he envisioned giving to the woman of his heart at this point. And Amy realizes that. Like, she knows as he's talking that this isn't for her. 
And she says, when it's all over and done, and he's like, well, there you have a story now and a ring. So if people ask questions, like it's a done deal. You have the proof. She says, the proposal she had fantasized about for years had just been delivered by the wrong man. A man whose pain darkened his shimmering eyes. A man whose soul lay bare for her to see. A man so loving and giving, he had kindly and gently shattered her illusions. And this is like checking the watch a third of the way through this book. And she's already realized, yeah, Joe ain't the man for me. Is basically what that says. Joe never would have said the things Jack said or bought the ring that Jack bought or like known what I wanted to hear so much, you know? I think it was a slight wake up call for her in a way. Amy holds on to that ring, even though she's never planning on like wearing it again. She wouldn't get rid of it because she knows what that proposal meant to Jack and what that ring symbolizes as far as their friendship and the significance of that moment that they shared together. Later in the book, Jack asks Amy, why don't you wear the ring I got you in 1909? And she just says she couldn't bear to wear it because it was such a meaningful piece, but he wasn't there with her. And like, it would just be too painful to wear that constant reminder. I love that he ends up giving her like the complete reverse of that ring. This sapphire was given to you out of good intent. I gave it to you to protect you and to put forth this charade, I guess. But giving her the real diamond with the sapphires around it was just a complete circle in a way and making sure that this is for real. One thing that I think sets Amy and Jack's love story apart in the diamond brooch is at the heart of this story is a phenomenal friendship. I think that sets them apart from a lot of other brooch relationships, in my opinion. And I like that whenever you look at Jack and Amy versus Kevin and JL, there's a great juxtaposition there in the comparison between the two relationships, which I'll definitely talk about more next week. It's just such a fantastic story. The friendship that they build really gives them a deep understanding of each other, what they need as partners. They understand the pain and torment that they've basically suffered internally. Emotional health and well-being is a huge theme in this story as well. I just feel like if we hadn't had all of this background information between Jack and Amy, it would be a lot harder to buy their love story and be so invested in it, I guess. They have a lot of conversations, almost more than other characters, I feel like. I feel like Bram and Charlotte had a lot. David and Kinsey's was like so fast and furious that I felt like they weren't together very much of their story. (laughs) Of course, we come back to David and Kinsey over the course of this series. So it's a different kind of story in a lot of respects. Jack kind of tells Amy the whole story of the 1881 adventure in case she senses any hostility between him and the rest of the rescue crew. In this conversation, Amy gives him a really wise piece of advice. She says, there are so many roads we can take in our lives and they all have potholes. The best we can hope for is to have a life partner who knows where the holes are and how to fix them. And I felt like this was a good representation of Jack and Amy's relationship because they do spend so much time having open and honest dialogue with each other about their own foibles, their own shortcomings things that have damaged them emotionally and how they're working on themselves. They know what each other's triggers are and how to 
make each other feel safe and loved. Jack knows that the soulmate element is at play here. I think that that was pretty obvious to him right about the time he saw her in Pittsburgh and she saw him. And they had this moment of connection, you know, across the room. They kind of just caught each other's eye. It was one of those things where things slowed down for them, but things kept happening like normal, if that makes sense. He says, you might think this is settled, but it's not. One day we'll have to deal with what's between us. And this is after Amy has come out with the truth about how she feels, that she wants to stay in 1909. She'll go back to clear Joe's name because that's the right thing to do and he didn't do anything to deserve being convicted of her murder. But she really intends to come back to 1909 and she needs to be very cognizant of how she leaves so that when she comes back, there's as little impact as possible. And Jack, the poor guy, he dealt with everything that happened with Carolina Rose and now he's pretty sure that Amy's his soulmate. But He's being the self-sacrificing person here and is like, if what you really want is to go to 1909, I will make this happen for you. I will do what I can to make this as easy as possible. I don't think Amy realizes what Jack is giving up in that moment because he knows that he's giving up happiness. Even though he may not emotionally be ready for a commitment of a serious relationship after his grief for Carolina Rose, he's still giving up membership in the soulmate club, which is something that he mentioned at the end of the three brooches that he felt that like loving, warm embrace of the soulmate club. And then shortly after he found out that Carolina Rose didn't make it and it just all got ripped away from him. And here, once again, he felt it being dangled in front of him, but Amy really has no desire to come back to the 21st century. And even if she did, like I said, she's taken. So I think that's why Jack doesn't pursue it any more heavily than he does but also there's no denying the connection that they have absolutely none there are a few things that just really stand out as far as hints that were made or choices that were made both by author and character that really alluded to this connection between them you've got amy catching a glimpse of jack on a book in lorette's house in like the first chapter where she makes a remark that Jack's book jacket smile is cocky and arrogant, but she was kind of curious. It didn't impress her, but she wanted to read the book to see if his writing style translated that cocky, arrogant attitude. And then at the end of the book, you get her saying that, no, his books basically turned their own pages because they were so fascinating and that that personality trait that she had kind of read into it wasn't really there in the writing. I really liked that, that Jack is one of those people that he's a public figure. He's well known. He kind of puts on this persona of like, has his own swagger and magnetism, but he needs somebody in his life that isn't going to judge the book by the cover, that is actually willing to read the book and find out what's in it and then make a judgment call on whether it's worth the time. You know, he needs somebody like that who's willing to spend the time on getting the story straight. And that's what Amy gives him. And I think that that is like that metaphor is beautifully written in this book that you see it kind of pulled time and time again. And then you get the fact that Amy kind of just longs for this sense of Southern hospitality and the sense of home 
She's originally from South Carolina, and she's always kind of wanted to go back to the South. That's her siren song. Jack's voice for her is the sound of the South and the sound of home. And it's just very relaxing for her. It just draws that connection to the fact that like Jack and Mallory Plantation are somewhere that she can call home because she grew up in the South. That was a really cool connection. It was something that is mentioned pretty much within the first couple of chapters that she mentions that like she just really wanted to return home to the South. And I was like, "Mm -hmm. well, I got a man for you. I really feel like, and I like this analogy, I was kind of just thinking of like how to describe Jack and Amy's relationship in a way. And I really view them as jigsaw puzzles. They're two completely different shapes that complement and complete each other. Amy's a baseball analyst and Jack's a writer. They have very different takes on the world, but they're also kind of just lock into place with each other and they just fit and they belong and there's no questioning the fact that they're great together. Amy's hand shakes when she makes eye contact at Jack while she's doodling in her journal and his hand is shaking when he holds his cup of coffee. He like tries to drink out of it but it like clinks against his glass. They're both shaking with this like almost adrenaline rush that's running through them. It's this electricity that's connecting them. Jack recognizes Amy as a woman filled with clarity and peace who carried herself with absolute confidence. And she's just the complete opposite of where he is in his life right now. He is unsure of his next move. He doesn't feel confident in his decisions after what happened in 1881. He definitely doesn't have clarity or peace. He's kind of adrift and wondering where he needs to go and what he needs to do. And is it the right decision? He's got a lot of tumultuous emotions going on in him. And I think Amy is a balm to his nerves in a way. She soothes him and her presence really calms him. And in this moment where they're looking at each other, it's funny because there's a moment where we get it from Jack's perspective. And then in the next chapter, we get it from Amy's perspective. And so we see the same scene from both characters. Amy says she felt like he was seeing through her, judging her emotions and like gauging her reaction. And all the while, having put together that these two, Jack and Connor, were time travelers, she's like, I'm not going back with them. Like, they can't make me go back with them because she's perfectly happy where she is. She has a home, a family, a great job. And these are all things that she strived for in her own time and hasn't been able to find like that complete life. Now that she's found it, she's like, I'm not going home. I don't care if it's a life or death situation. I'm not going home. And Jack is thinking Amy Spaulding wasn't out of time and place. The diamond brooch had brought her to a world she had dreamed of, a world that captured her heart, a world that wouldn't easily let her go. So while she's thinking about the fact that she doesn't want to go, he's thinking about the fact that she doesn't want to go. He sees in her what she is thinking to herself, this sort of telepathic communication, as it were. They do it again when they get to the hotel and they like instantaneously come up with a story on why they're together and what's happening to kind of protect her reputation, as it were. It's just this wordless melding of the minds. 
and it's very cool but it's also like a telltale mark of brooch soulmates because they're not the only ones that have this connection david and kenzie have it charlotte and bram have it and to an extent i think kevin and jl have it as well but their relationship is muddled by all the emotions right now so we do see it time and again like i said they connect each other Jack's a pantser, Amy's a plotter, but somehow like they're both writers and they're both creative spirits and they both love baseball. So they have these opposing sides to themselves, but they still like fit together nicely. It's not an opposites attract type deal. Like they're very similar in a lot of ways, but they also have enough of a difference in their views and opinions to like spark good and honest conversation. So I mentioned that... They have this connection, but they also have this, like, intense sexual chemistry, (laughs) which, again, is another marker of these brooch soulmate relationships, but throws a wrench into the works when Amy is spoken for. She's in a committed relationship with Joe, and so it's not just a matter of playing it safe, it's a matter of, I don't want to be unfaithful to my significant other that I've been with for years. And Jack recognizes that and wants to do the honorable thing. And he'll wait as long as it takes for Amy to come to him. He knows where he stands on the matter, but he's not going to push her on it either. He knows that she feels the same way. At least he thinks she does. But again, he's not going to put himself in a position where he's going to get his heart broken again. Amy says... She had thought his vulnerability swam off him in waves, but up close, his raw sexuality was a full-blown tsunami. So I like that little wordplay there. But they're very drawn to each other, and they can sense the conflict in each other. And I think that the raw emotionality of their personalities also draws each other to them just as much as, like, their physical appearance Her mind totally wanders, and this is one of my favorites. She said, she cocked her head to study him more closely and found herself wondering if he could throw a curveball from a reclining position while on top of her, kissing her with his Cupid bow lips. (laughs) I was like, hmm, now what are you supposed to be focusing on? (laughs) Get your head out of the gutter. There are some like scorching moments of sexual tension here. I particularly like the one where Jack tipped her chin up to him to like look her in the eye. And Amy says they were like a finger width apart. And she said she held her breath because he smelled like sin and salvation. And I'm like, honey, you need to break up with your boyfriend ASAP if you got a man that smells like sin and salvation and clearly wants to kiss you. Yeah, it's just a great, great moment for them. Like, that they spend all this time in 1909 developing this friendship and this sexual tension, like, knowing that they basically love each other, right? But that they can't admit they love each other because there are other people involved. And then they go back to the 21st century, and it's a year for Amy. It's only a couple months for Jack, but it's a full year of her trying to get her life in order, trying to forget about Jack, like, oh, he's probably not interested anymore, like, I just need to move on. That's got to be so hard. I think one key aspect of Jack, particularly for Amy, is that he's accepting of a strong woman. Like, we've got the misogyny that Amy experiences in 1909 and how much that really irked her and how hard she's worked 
to be at the top of her game in a male-dominated industry. Naturally, it would be very important for her to find a man that can support her and her endeavors and not feel like he needs to either be jealous or to kind of quash her ambitions at all. Jack is definitely that person for her. Charlotte's a surgeon. He knows what it's like, especially being part of the McClinic clan, to have these like go-getter, fighter, warrior women. And he wants to be supportive of that. I love that he has this line that he says, he says it to JL and he says it to Amy, but he says, now go kill it. Like, you can do this. You got this. Go kill it. It's just fantastic to see that support and that like being Charlotte's brother and having to be used to waiting on her while she did her thing. He's not insecure about that. He's used to waiting. He's not going to push her into something that she's not ready for or to conform to his ideas of social norms. The reunion for Amy is 12 months coming. It's a long time. That woman, I mean, I'm glad that she had a year to realize that she's in love with Jack Mallory, but the poor thing was so desperate that she was just lining up his books and staring at his book jacket covers because she missed him so much. I'm like, girlfriend, text him. And I get it. Like, she didn't know that he was back for sure. And he thought she was still with Joe. So it's just massive miscommunication. But I feel like Jack should have at least texted her and at least been like, hey, we're back. And then if she's like, oh, good, I'm glad you're back and just left it at that, you would know she's not interested. But you needed to at least put it out there. Like, that was two more months that they spent apart because he didn't text her and let her know they were back. I just feel like these Mallory kids, you know... They just must be gluttons for punishment. They like to be separated from their soulmates, apparently, because, you know, Charlotte did it. Jack did it. It's just ridiculous. So JL and Kevin, they know how much they owe Jack for everything. And so I love that they're just being like little devious, planning behind his back, getting Amy invited to the wedding and all of this jazz and not telling him so that he can be surprised. It's so cute. And I totally get why they did not tell him. He literally would have just flogged it to death. Like, when's Amy going to be here? Are you sure she's interested? Well, what if she's still with Joe? Why did they... She's not with Joe. Why did they break up? Well, what if... (laughs) Never would have stopped. So I think they made the right decision in not telling him, but also, like, maybe a little bit of a heads up would have been nice. If he could have been freshly showered and ready to kiss her when she pulled in the driveway, that would have been real nice. Maybe Kevin could have just been like, hey, bro, uh, we're going to take pictures in the next little bit. So can you just go take a shower? I mean, just lie. Like, you've already lied about all kinds of shit. So why not lie about this, too? (laughs) Lots of red flags going up for Amy with all of this. Like, she knows that something is not totally kosher because Meredith and JL both had very brief conversations with her on the phone and they just like hurried up and got off. And then there seemed to be all these illusions. She overheard Charlotte's conversation with Bram and the galley about like, well, if we play this right, she could be our sister-in-law by Christmas. So she knows something's happening, but she's not sure what's happening. It's like the best surprise ever. I'm not like a surprise person. I love surprising people when I can keep my mouth shut long enough to surprise people. I hate being surprised. Like, I hate it. So, like, I get it, but I don't get it at the same time for Amy. What was it going to hurt to tell Amy she was on a plane? It's not like she could have called him. They have this grand reunion, lots of great sex, and it's just all around romantic. And then they come home 
to the United States and she goes on her merry way covering the World Series and he goes on his merry way doing book stuff, meeting with his agent and doing research and yada yada. And they're home for like three weeks, right? They have all the discussions about the vasectomy and getting married and all of that jazz. We find out that Amy waited for Joe to propose for freaking ever. (laughs) She gave that man all the time in the world. She came back in October. She waited all the way through the holidays. Every special weekend they had together, every anniversary, every Christmas party and holiday event, she gave him through Valentine's Day and still didn't. And then she's like, you know what? I can't anymore. So she broke up with him and it was like sort of a non-event because he totally saw it coming and probably was just afraid to break up with her at that point. I mean, what other reason does a man have for not putting a ring on it after four years? So the real proposal, yeah, let's just talk about this for a minute, okay? I was just talking to a friend about this because he's thinking about proposing to his girlfriend. And he said, yeah, I only have one requirement when we've talked about it in the past, him and his girlfriend, that I don't propose at a professional sporting event on the big screen because she thinks that it's ridiculous and it's not special. And nobody else needs to be in that moment except for us. And I just couldn't help but think about this. And I was like, I mean, yeah, I guess it's like very appropriate for Jack and Amy because baseball is so important to them or whatever. But he really did not think about how she felt about public displays of affection, I guess, before he did this. (laughs) Because she is so mad. She's like, he's going to need six months of therapy to recover for this. And I'm probably going to need a whole year. She's like, I'm not going down there. And the only thing that gets her down out of the announcer's booth and down onto the field is the threat that this is going to cut into the airtime for the game. And then she's like, fine. She'd rather be hiding under the desk in mortification. I don't know. She's just being so dramatic about it. And like for Amy, that's just such a not amy thing you know it's just like this relationship with jack has brought out her insecurities maybe because it's so new but she was very freaked out that he wouldn't answer her calls or wouldn't text her back and then with this whole thing she's like oh my god he's gonna mess up he's gonna humiliate me etc etc so it's just funny that this normally cool as a cucumber amy spaulding is just so freaked out (laughs) by Jack doing whatever the hell he's doing out on the field. The man knows what he's doing, okay? He was drafted by the Yankees, okay? He's not gonna fuck it up that bad. I loved his new proposal, almost as the original, um, where he said, today our love is new and frantic, tomorrow old and sure. Be my wife, Amy, marry me, and make me the happiest Yankees fan on the planet. (laughs) So I guess they can accept each other and like she's a Giants fan and he's a Yankees fan and they'll just have to get over it, I guess. (laughs) I mean, not to say that the first the first one was so romantic. You can't overdo that one, I feel like, in my opinion. Like, I feel like that was more my speed of a proposal, the first one. But it was also like him coming to terms with his grief over Carolina Rose. So obviously we needed a second one that was like him professing his love for Amy. (laughs) The first one was so beautifully written. Obviously, Amy and Jack are the story here, right? But it's also about Amy's absorption into the clan and her making a family 
with the McLennas because that's part of the reason she didn't want to leave 1909 is because she had this family with Maria and Isabella and Gabe and she had a job that she loved at the Herald. Well, she's still got a family because she got to bring Isabella, Maria and Gabe with her, but she's also got the McLennas now. And she also has a job that she loves at ESPN. So she's not giving up anything by coming back. And I think that took a lot for her to like come to terms with that. But she makes note several times that if she goes back, like she wants to keep her relationships with Jack and JL and Connor and Pete and Isabella and Maria and Gabe. You know, she doesn't want to give any of that up. But she's afraid that Joe won't accept those relationships because it would be hard for her to explain that she met these people in 1909 on some acid trip through time. (laughs) And, you know, there was a comment made about like, well, Jack and Joe would probably be civil, but they would never get along. And I was like, I wonder why. Like, are they just like different in personality or what? And Catherine just said that they would be too competitive over Amy, which I guess makes sense. I could see where that would be a problem if she's got this attraction to Jack and Joe would probably sense that even if he doesn't fully understand why. And so he wouldn't want her to have a relationship with anyone because Jack would be involved in some way, shape or form. After they go shopping in Milan and they're like finally on their way to Tuscany, Amy says that she's never felt so welcome anywhere in her life as she has with all the McLenna women. Like they're all strong, independent, take charge, but they're also like loving and kind and just absolutely wonderful. And she feels like she fits right in. And she says, it was as if all the regret and fear, anger and guilt, grief and longing had been wrung from Amy's soul and consigned to the glowing fire pit. It's how she puts it. When they're all sitting around the fire after her and Jack have their reunion and before Kevin and JL get married and all of that. And they're just telling stories and singing and having a good time. She just feels so welcome and her life feels so complete at that moment. There's a conversation between Jack and JL where she says, well, it may not matter to Kevin that he has somebody that fits in well with the clan, but you would never marry somebody who doesn't fit in. And Jack says, well, you picked up on that quickly. Like he wouldn't choose that unless they fit in well with the family. And Amy just does hands down. There's no doubt about it. And I think it's just because she's so laid back in every way possible. And I think that's why her and JL fit so well together because JL just, I'm sorry, she can be a little crazy. She's just so like, me, 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 like, I don't know what it is. Like she can have an attitude and it is just not becoming. (laughs) But then also JL's just very stressed out by what's going on in her life right now. And she's just triggered left and right by everything that's happening. Lots of clashing going on. And Amy is just this calm, cool, collected personality. And we see that with her impact on Jack and how she's a peaceful presence for him. And she's also like that with JL. They're instant friends. And Amy says, if at some point in the future, Amy ever wondered about the moment she bonded with JL, it would be right then. A moment in time when two hungover, confused women who worked in a man's world needed an understanding ear, a strong shoulder to cry on, and a drinking buddy to either laugh with or give a middle finger to whoever in their opinion deserved it. Cupid might be a good start. So this is when they're like both trying to figure out their love lives. JL and Kevin are on the rocks. 
Amy's feeling this attraction to Jack, but she knows she's committed to Joe and she just doesn't really know where to go with that. They kind of are put together, Amy and JL, at times in their lives when they really just need a girlfriend. They're the two women in the clan that are closest in age. I mean, I think they're similar in age to Kenzie, but yeah, I think it's just really good for JL to get like an outside third party opinion that's not attached in any way, shape or form to the McLenna clan. Um, Because she knows that Amy's going to be honest with her about the whole Kevin situation and that she can be honest to Amy because Amy doesn't have a dog in this fight. They really just needed each other at this time in their lives. And I was very happy to see it. You know, Amy's been struggling for a whole year. And as soon as she gets that invite from JL for the wedding and like she talks to JL on the phone, there's a whole shift in her personality. And she makes notes of how she felt alive again and her world was full of wonder and excitement. Her creative juices were flowing. The colors on the trees were so much more vibrant. And she just feels like she's herself again. And she's been living in this gray and white world because she didn't have any of her friends and anything she loved. And she was just kind of going through the motions. So now that she has her friends and the McLenna clan, it's just absolutely perfect now. I was going to spend this last little bit talking about the brooch mythology, the motive of the brooches a little bit. And like, first time it's like spread everybody out, thrown to the four winds, I feel like. And this is kind of the first time that we see the brooches almost interfering in a way. There's a reason for it, right? I mean, if they hadn't done that, JL wouldn't have been in the police station to know Amy had reported her bag stolen and that they needed to reach out to Gabrielle Moretti and that she was writing for the Herald and all of that. But this is the first time that we've really seen something like that happen so obviously. The brooches help JL, Kevin, and Jack and Amy. And I know it doesn't immediately look like that, but A, it connected Amy with all the rescuers. And B, by putting JL and Kevin in the park and all the crap happening with Mustache Cop, It made them confront their inner demons in a way. Like it made them face the difficulties in their relationship. It made Kevin snap because that was the only way that he was going to get help. It was the only way he was going to face the fact that something needed to change. I really think that if Kevin and Jail had not gone on this trip, they would have just fumbled around and maybe end up got married, but like wouldn't have been happy because they wouldn't have dealt with their issues. Kevin and JL were still helped a lot by this brooch mission. The Amethyst brooch was there, still working in the background, doing its little thingy thing. This is also the first story that the diamond and Amethyst have the different inscriptions on them. I don't think it was a coincidence, honestly, because this is also the first story that we get where there's no real plot difficulty until the McLennan clan gets involved. It gives Amy everything she needs. It gives her money, a job, friends, a good place to live. It drops her right where she wants to be. I don't know another brooch lady who can say that. I don't think it was a coincidence. The brooch has a different inscription and that she's somehow coasted through this experience relatively. I mean, obviously, Stephen Thompson was not coasting. It kind of just set her up for success. And we also met a lot more people that we hadn't really met the people that we were going to bring forward before. Like it hadn't been a viable option, I guess. And now... Here in this one, we're bringing a lot of people forward and it's having a domino effect. We've got Patrick, we've got Isabella, Gabe, Maria, and they're all having this 
profound impact on the clan and on the future, honestly. Like, you don't know what they're changing by being there. There's a question that's raised about the inscription because the difference in the inscription is this. The ruby, the emerald, and the sapphire say capacity of the soul. And then the diamond and the amethyst say soul's love for humanity. I think that there's got to be some connection there with the connections that people make with the people that they meet. It's not necessarily that like soulmates aren't a key goal of the brooches, but I think it's just that it was not necessarily just the soulmates. Like that wasn't the only goal. It was to create these ties. And it's like, well, there's there could be the argument made that Carolina Rose brought Jack and Amy together and Austin brought Kevin and JL together. Like, was it the people or was it the brooches? Both? That's my final answer. And Elia even mentions that like Patrick and Isabella seem to have like a higher IQ. And it was really surprising. So I think that they're special. In a way, I mean, obviously, we don't know yet quite what their story entails. When we're looking at the boxes that we get later, I can't remember how the boxes are organized. But I was like, okay, so are the diamond and the amethyst and the third brooch in that box, did they all have the same inscription? (laughs) Yeah, I do think we're in for something with Patrick and Isabella. With the amethyst having that connection, I mean... It brought the O'Grady's into the McLennan clan, which are also kind of an outside source of people. That's all I've got for today. (laughs) Yay! We made it. My voice is about shot, but we made it. And next week, we'll really break into the O'Grady, Fraser, mess. We'll talk about Kevin and Elliot's showdown. We'll talk about JL and her brothers will talk about all the conflicts and PTSD and what have you, plus all of our little McLenna side family gigs going on. And I'll chat at you next week where we can finish this bad boy up before the holidays. So you guys have a good one. I'll talk to you next week. And until then, stay safe out there. I'll chat at you later. 